podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We want to take all of our questions to Him. We want to seek Him for our answers because we believe that when we search for Him and find Him that we will be drawn to Him. We believe that God will reveal Himself to us. If you're new here, we want to welcome you. And if you want to ask a question, all you've got to do is write the word question in front of it and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. All right, maybe do that again. And then go ahead and add your reference and add your question. We're certainly not saying that we have the answers to all of the questions, but whatever we can look at, We always go back and take a look at later if we feel like it wasn't answered in a satisfactory way. So it's good to see you guys. Hope you're having a good day. Our first question comes from one that was asked at our last Q&A. At the very end of our session, I didn't have time to cover it. And then when I went back to look at it, I saw that there was one last question that said, I had a death of someone close to me that was senseless and I'm angry with God, what should I do? And I've got to tell you that my heart went out to them because I know exactly what they're going through. 10 years ago, this December, I lost my wife to stage four lung cancer. It didn't make any sense to me. And I remember getting angry with God, which understand is one of the, it is one of the stages of grief, but the stages of the steps of grief aren't like step one is this, step two is this, step three is this. Grief is different for everybody and things happen in different orders and they take longer for some and not as long as others. All I would say, the only advice I would give you is don't hurry through grief. Don't try to escape it. Some people have tried to escape grief. Christians, through 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 um, a new brand new relationship quickly, because the endorphins from a new relationship relationship mask the grief, or they turn to a substance, because it masks the grief that they're going through. In order to be healthy and for God to do the work that He's doing in you, you've got to go through grief. I was upset at people who told me at one point when I started to to move on with my life from my uh, from my loss that they said well he's moved on i never really moved on but i moved through and for those of you who have lost someone you'll understand that you move through it you move on with them you don't move on without them and i think that's something really really important to understand so let me address this idea of being angry with god so something happens i um, let me give you my experience first i uh was laying on my bed. This is a, probably a few weeks after losing my late wife, Lisa. And I had my hands laid out to the side and I was just frustrated. And I told God, I don't care if I live or die, God. I didn't want to die. I didn't, I, I didn't want to kill myself, but I truly did not care if God took my life at the moment. I didn't want to live anymore. I just said, I don't care. Take me or don't. And I looked over on on the wall, there was a cross that had the word love in the middle of it. We had it hanging up in our bedroom. And I looked at that cross and I said to God, I don't know if you really do love me. And people might say, well, it's a little scary. And I think it probably is. But remember that God can handle my anger and my grief and me feeling like God should have done something differently. In my mind, how good would it have been for God to have had a pastor's wife confirmed with with lung cancer and then to heal her? But God chose a different path because God was doing something different. And here's the thing about life. and, And here's the thing about when something senseless happens and we find ourselves angry with God. We've got to realize, number one, that we are not the only people in the world that God's doing all kinds of other things and God's working within us and he's working with them. And I heard Frank Turek talk about the ripple effect one time, that think about all of the ripples that had to take place for you to be here. And think of all the ripples that God's doing in order to bring about his will in the future. And sometimes those ripples may affect me in a negative way. And it doesn't mean God doesn't love me, but it does mean 
that God will cause all things to work together for the good. Even it is, if it's something as devastating as it was for me, like losing a spouse. But God wasn't mad at me for being angry. God didn't get mad at Job for being angry. Job said, um, Job, Job said, I wish God were a man for if God were a man, I would sit him down and I'd ask him what's going on. And I felt like that before. And maybe you felt like that before. And I'm not trivializing in any way what you are going through when you say that a senseless death happened and I'm angry with God about it. I'm not saying, listen, it's not important. It was, it wasn't trivial. It may, I mean, it, it wasn't a trivial death. It may have, or, or a senseless death. It may have been a senseless death. It may have been something that is just so awful that you can't understand why God would ever allow it. Because even though God didn't cause it, God allowed it to happen. He could have stopped it and God didn't stop it. And so you have to struggle with why God didn't you step in and intervene. And I just want you to know that a lot of the psalmists were angry at God. A lot of the psalmists, where are you at? Why haven't you helped me? I cry to you and you don't answer me. So you are not unique. I was angry at God. Most people at some time or another get angry because it doesn't go the way we want it to go. But what we want to happen and what actually happens are, are different things. God can handle that. It's okay to express that to God. Now, I don't think it's a good lifestyle to be angry at God. I think you've got to sooner or later begin to sit down and accept what God has for you. But I just want to give you a couple ideas of how God uses struggles and difficulties. Imagine if no, nothing bad ever happened to us. If I went through my whole adult life from the time I, I was a pastor and started being a youth pastor when I was 22 years old until now, nothing but good things happened to me. I got everything that I wanted. If you have a child that you give everything they want, anything they ask, everything they want, you give to them, what happens to them? They become a brat. They become spoiled because they haven't had any difficulty. They haven't had to work for anything. They haven't had any struggles. And we have a God who disciplines us, who wants to work out good in our lives. Let me show you a passage here. And this is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And it's one of my favorite passages when we're talking about things that we go through, because we see here what God's doing. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you need, uh, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. No, he doesn't play down the trials. He says, grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory, and the revelation of Christ Jesus. God takes us through, through times of grieving and trials, here grieved and by, by various trials, you grieved, so that he can do a work inside of us. God's doing more than we can possibly understand, not only with you, but with people around you. I love that Job said, though he slay me, yet I will, I will trust him. Job had everything taken from him. He'd lost his family. His wife said to him, why don't you curse God and die? And yet Job was able to say, though he slay me, I will trust him. I can say that in my own personal life, when I was angry with God for taking Lisa, and I, and I think of my kids too, how much they suffered when they lost her and still suffer. And I can tell you that I got, I got through that, saying to God finally, Lord, I know that I can trust you. All things work together for the good to those who love them, to those who are called according to his purpose. And whatever happens to me, if I die tomorrow, I'll serve him today. If I know that serving him today is gonna cause me to die tomorrow, I'll serve him today and I'll live for him throughout the remainder of my life. Whatever it is that God has planned or whatever it is that God has in store for me, I'll serve him and love him. And I think that we all as Christians should have that commitment. We've given our lives to him. We've surrendered ourselves to him. We've said to him, we are living sacrifices that we can prove what is the perfect, acceptable and good will of God in your life. And so we will go through whatever it is that God takes us through, that we are able to live for him in any way that we possibly can.
So good to see you guys here today. I really do appreciate you. Uh, I hope you're having a great day. I hope that God's blessing you in a lot of different ways. Uh, if you have a question, you're new here, you have a question, we take questions about the Bible, about prophecy, about Christian living, struggles that we may be going through, just questions you have that don't seem to make sense about God, and we'll see if we can make any sense about it. Just write, write the word question in front of your question in the comment section, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, and then go ahead and submit it, and we will take time to take a look at it. All right, let me get my Bible back up here so we can go to it if I need to. All right, good. And um, we're gonna start to make our way through these questions. I appreciate you guys being here. So we have, first of all, a question from Empress Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, Happy Thanksgiving. Heard a teaching that the only valid vision version is the King, King James Version. I'm sorry you heard that. I'm always sorry when I hear that because it was uh, translated word for word from the original Greek. Others are translated from modern Greek. Thoughts? Yes. I have a ton of thoughts on this. Um, no, it was not translated word for word from the original Greek. So what, who was ever teaching you that is, is teaching you wrongly. The 1611 version of the King James Bible was taken from a certain set of manuscripts and translated over into, into 1611 English. And there are mistakes in it. For example, the 1611 said in uh, Psalms 22, talks about unicorns. We know there's no unicorns. They didn't know there were no unicorns when they were putting it together. So they translated a word in Hebrew that means oxen as unicorn. There's also a couple of other mistakes. It's interesting, one of those mistakes was translated by Joseph Smith into the Mormon Bible. It's funny, Joseph Smith is supposed to have an angel showing him in the golden tablets and him translating things down, but he translates over the, the mistake that was in the King James. So there are several places, mistakes that you can find in the King James. Now the New King James Bible came, Bible came from the same set of manuscripts. It's a good set of manuscripts. It's the, it's, I wanna say it's the, the Masoretic text that it was taken from, but don't, don't take that word for word. I could take some time to, to look it up. Did I bring my, I don't know if I brought my, I thought I got my phone here. Um, anyway, we, you could take time to look it up and just, uh, just, just type in, um, where, um, what manuscripts were, was the King James Version taken from? Hold on, I'm gonna do it. What man, sorry. Um, almost done. If I had a better memory, I wouldn't have to do this. All right, what manuscripts were the Sweden and Bible taken from? Um, okay, it didn't come up with a quick answer. Ah, all right, so that was a waste of time. Okay, so anyway, there was a certain set of manuscripts was taken from. Now, since 1611, there have been a lot of manuscripts found, some good, some bad, some old, some very old, and some very good. And so if you, Kimberly, we're going to write a translation of the Bible for someone living in 1990. Would you just use the manuscripts that they had available in 1611? Or would you use every manuscript that we now had available that had been discovered? Would you look at everything that, criti that, that textual criticism, which is a science, which looks at manuscripts and determines what is genuine and what is not genuine. It's a science by which they compare and contrast and it, and it, and it makes good decisions. And so the new versions, the NASB being probably one of the better ones, uh, the um, NIV, which I don't like in a lot of ways, the ESV, which I don't like in a lot of ways because it seems like it had a lot of Calvinists that were working on it that took certain terms that when you look it up in the Greek doesn't mean what it means. 
Uh, so when you realize there's these slants, then you want to find what would be the best version of the Bible for you to be able to look at. But the King James only people are like, they believe, just listen to what they believe. They believe that God inspired the 1611 version of the Bible so that what it says is true in every other Bible isn't. When it was put together by manuscripts, by experts that used manuscripts during their day with limitations on their day. And it turns into this huge point of arrogance where, where they'll say things about the reason people have different doctrines is because they don't have the King James. They'll talk about it all of the time. Um, no, it is not a word for word translation. So that is just not true. It's just not true. They did the same thing everybody else did where they go back and you want a word for word translation. The best that there is, I think is the NASB, the 2020 version, but they still, have to add in things and they still have to take freight words that are phrases and they have to translate them over to mean what they meant back then. Because today, if you were going to get a word for word translations of what I say, and I say, um, that's like, um, that was the frosting on the cookie. Now, what I mean by that is that was the best part. That was the frosting on the cookie. But then when they're translating the future, they put, and that was the frosting on the cookie. And in 2000 years, they go, well, I guess frosting was on his cookie. See, they don't get it. So they have to go in and look at idioms, sayings of their day, the way things were said. You just can't translate things word for word. You can try the best you can, and there are, are translations that do that, and there are transliterations, and then there are paraphrase Bibles, and all of these have their strengths and their weaknesses, but um, the, the, the New King James only people drive me crazy, just so you know. It, they absolutely drive me crazy. If I, um, if I begin to um, listen to something by someone who's New King James only, and they go off on a tangent on it, I stop listening to them. I'm not interested in listening to them because they are taking that version of the Bible, turning it into the inspired word of God and nothing else is. When think about it, there's, there's no way that it's in the inspired version and they don't have all of the latest manuscripts that have been found. And the way that they got those were because they thought they were the best manuscripts of their day. So why wouldn't we go with the best manuscripts of our day? All right. Now, I mean, Christianity became well-established in the early second century, which is 125, 123. We have the first creed, the Apostles' Creed given, which has every aspect of Christianity in it that we follow today. So we had a lot of stuff really early. And there's not things that change in it, but there are things that are obviously wrong in the King James Bible. And that's probably the best way that I, I know to, well, I don't know if you even want to argue. I don't know if you want to argue with someone like that, but the best way that I know is to show them the errors that are in there, and to say, "Here's an error. This is not what the the manuscript says that it was taken from. It was a mistake." And so, if they made a mistake there, then you go back to the manuscripts, right? Because it's not the version of the Bible that is without error. It's the manuscripts, or it's the original copy, and us rebuilding that original copy, and then having our confidence with it. Now, this might bring up a whole lot of questions about whether or not we can trust the Bible then, and I'm willing to take them, but uh, the 16, the King James Bible, the 1611 version of the Bible, fine, fine translation, but by far not the best, and by far not the only one that you can real re really read, and you're certainly not of the devil if you read the King James Bible. I mean, yeah, you're certainly not of the devil if you don't read the King James Bible. All right. And even though I read the New King James Bible, which came from the same set of manuscripts that the King James Bible came from, but I don't think they'd be happy with me either for reading that one. All right. Kimberly, thank you for your question. I hope that helps. Um, if you have a follow up on that, I would love to talk to you more if you have certain details about it. All right. So we have a question from Keeping It Real. Keeping It Real. Good to see you. I just realized that I have my ba a different background up for you guys today. So this is the hot topics background that I do. And uh, I don't have my, my skitty cityscape of Tucson. Um, anyway, we'll do it this way. Uh, keeping it real, question. When do the two witnesses come from 
on the scene during the tribulation. Or, or let me read this again. When do the two witnesses come on the scene during the tribulation? Thank you and th happy Thanksgiving. Well, I think they come on the scene in Revelation chapter 11. And let's just go and see. And happy Thanksgiving to you too. Keeping it real. I appreciate that. Uh, I hope uh, you do tomorrow, right? Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving and stay close to Christ. But I'm going to get to Revelation chapter 11 here. So the two witnesses uh, show up on the scene and they uh, minister in Jerusalem. Let's just read a little bit of this here. I don't know how much we'll read, but let's read some and see what we see. Um, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, which is interesting. That might mean that the Dome of the Rock could remain and the temple could be built with the Dome of the Dome of the Spirit is, and then you would have this separation. And, and do not measure it. It has been given over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be studying on this in a few months. And we will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Um, that's three and a half years, right? And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,236 days. And I'm like, well, I have a calculator, but I won't calculate. I think that's going to be 1,236 days divided by 30. I don't know if someone wants to do that math. Um, th then you can get it. Okay, so they show up somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. Um, they show up in Jerusalem. They are Jewish. They're the lampstands out of Zechariah. Um, and uh, no one can harm them or strike them. And then finally, they are given over to the Antichrist. They are killed, but they resurrect there in their presence. They cause a whole lot of difficulty and a whole lot of trouble during the time of the Antichrist, the reign of the Antichrist in Jerusalem. God is reaching out to the Jewish people in Jerusalem during the time when the two witnesses are there. So uh, you could do the, the work on it, uh, by adding up those dates that you find in Revelation chapter 11. Um, we could talk about who the two witnesses are as well. All right. Um, let's see. All right. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you, Daniel. All right. Um, so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, are there different levels of righteousness? The opposite of sin. To God, does God see righteous deeds the same or different? Example, giving to the church versus sharing the gospel. Follow-up. So kind of a follow-up of a question that we had. So we were asked about uh, last week about whether or not every sin is the same. And obviously, no, every sin isn't the same. If I, if I get angry with someone, the Bible says I murdered them in my heart. But if I murder them, I took their life from them. I stole their life from them. So one has to do with me and the, the, the murder in my heart. The other one has to do with that person having their life taken from them, steal, uh, taking the life from someone who's created in the image of God. And so uh, God's going to treat that much differently. And never does the Bible ever say that, that God's going to be unfair or unjust in the way. It always says he's going to be just in the way he serves people. But the reason the question comes up is because if you break the law in one way, then you've broken the entire law. Chuck Smith used to give an example where he talked about, you know, living a perfect life. You just you had everything right between you and God forever. And then right before you die, somebody pulls out in front of you and you call them a name. And now you've blown it. Although you lived your whole life because you've now violated the law, you've blown it. So the question, are there different levels of righteousness? Yes, most definitely. There are different levels of righteousness in several different ways, Jari. Uh, think about it. I can have, I can have righteousness in my life that is that is that is imputed by God, where someone else might not have that imputed righteousness. I can have the sanctification of righteousness in my life at one level, and another Christian have it at another level. And there are rewards in heaven because of my attitude and the real righteousness that there is based on the other that's there. So, yeah, I do believe that there can be different levels of righteousness. You can have someone who's living righteously and someone who's living righteously in every way. 
so yeah, I see. I think that God does see them all differently. God's not going to treat everybody the same. And um, Jari, we're going to be treated according to the things that we have done. And God rewards us according to the things that we have done. So I think that's very important. And also God's not going to punish people. Some will be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many stripes. So hell is not going to be the same for everyone. All right. So um, thank you very much, Jari, for the question. I appreciate that. Uh, Daru, good to see you. Daru says, hello, Pastor Robert. Is it all right to celebrate Christmas and Easter? Some people say that Christmas is pagan. Can you explain, Pastor Robert? Thank you. Yes. So um, back in the days of the Romans, when Christianity began to really overthrow Roman paganism, think about it. In the beginning of Christianity, there was Zeus and there was Hermes and there was um, Aphrodites, and there was Pan, and there's all these different Roman gods. And then Christianity spread around the world, then made such an influence that it became the dominant Christianity of Rome. I mean, the dominant religion of Rome, about 300 BC. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, because a lot of people then changed to Christianity because it was now the sanctioned religion of Rome, and so they switched over to it and just think about how totally and completely the worship of Zeus and Aphrodite, Diana, um, all these god, these false gods have been completely and totally destroyed. So there was a, something called Saturnalia. And, and people will say that, and it was around the end of the year. And it was a, it was a, a 10 day feast. And so some people say Christmas is the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year or around there. And we're celebrating what the pagans celebrated by bringing greenery into our house, by exchanging gifts. Um, that's paganism, and we shouldn't do it. Okay? But here's the thing. And people, some are going to get angry with, but when I say this, especially the Jehovah Witnesses that believe this and kind of push it, and a lot of Christians grab onto it. Okay? I am not celebrating Saturnalia. First of all, you can go look at what Saturnalia was and you can look at what I do and they're not the same. And we are not celebrating Saturnalia in any way, shape or form. To us, the bringing of a tree into the house is not the cutting down of a Tammuz tree. That was a, it, out of um, the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah, I think it's Jeremiah, um, might be Isaiah, and bringing it into your house. That was a totem pole, that they, it was an idol that you brought into your house and worshiped. We bring a, a Christmas tree into our house as a tradition of something that we have done in the United States for the last hundred years or so. And maybe maybe a little longer than that. And to me, it has nothing to do with idolatry or paganism. It has everything to do with me and the Christmas traditions that I have had. Giving of gifts is because we were given the gift of Jesus. That's why I have it. What other people might have or what other people might do doesn't matter to me. What you're doing to him who is pure, all things are pure. And what you're doing in your life, don't let anyone else tell you what you should or shouldn't do. Now, we should take other people into account. And if someone is stumbling because of what we do, then we should look at what we're doing. But these guys aren't stumbling because of what we're doing. They're judging us and they're telling us we can't do it. It's not a matter of, of a guy going like this, Daru. Just think of this. I went over to your house and there were Christmas presents and there was a Christmas tree and a star on top. And you guys had a nativity scene that was on, that was on your the, the, the table near your dinner table. And, and, and I was, all of a sudden, I was tempted to become a pagan. And so I started to worship the old pagan gods. That would be stumbling into sin. For them to walk in and go, I am offended that you would have a Christmas tree or a star or Christmas lights or Christmas decoration. To that I say, oh well, we're serving God. Our hearts are pure. And by you being offended at me doing that doesn't hurt your walk with Christ at all. Except that maybe you should stop judging me and judging me in what I do. But we've taken this idea of offending a brother, a weaker brother, too far. It's the idea of offending them and causing them to fall into some kind of sin. Paul said, if eating meat would cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Do I think for a moment that that Christian who is super legalistic 
that won't celebrate Christmas on any level or, or celebrate Easter by getting up, Resurrection Day by getting up and getting dressed and celebrating or having an Easter egg hunt in the backyard with the kids, like somehow they're now involved in some deeply demonic pagan, whatever its roots were in, that's not why they're doing it. And God looks at the heart. Since when did God stop looking at the heart and start looking at the roots of what someone did 2000 years ago or 1700 years ago? God looks at the heart. Now there are gonna be a lot of people, you'd be able to go to, you can go and you can find plenty of, um, of people that will criticize what I'm saying on YouTube. You can look up videos on paganism and you're gonna have people that are gonna say yes and no. I think they're being legalistic. I think they're not looking at the heart. I think they are judgmental. I think that I should stay out of people's business. Mind your own business, the Bible says. And as long as they are not sinning while they are doing it, to him, uh, all things are pure to him who is pure then no problem. Make your own mind up, make your own decision up on, on whether or not you want to do these things. And if you're convicted and you say, I don't think I should do it, then don't do it. Then, then by all means, don't do it. Because if you do it, then it is, then Daru, it, it will become sin to you. Because if you think something is sin and you do it and it becomes sin, let me read you this passage out of Romans. I think it will help you, Daru. Um, so they were having the same kind of struggles in the early church. Some were believing in certain things and others. Um, and here it says, uh, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. So here we have a doubtful thing. Is me bringing a Christmas tree in somehow connected to paganism 1700 years ago? And am I therefore sinning because we have gifts under it, okay? It's a doubtful thing. For one believes he may eat all things, but the one who is weak only eats vegetables. So there was the, the person who's weak is the person that restricts himself. The guy who says that I can't do Christmas or I can't do have anything to do with Easter is weak. He's the weaker brother. And it says, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. So if you have a Christmas tree, I'm not to judge you. And if you don't have a Christmas tree, I'm not to judge you. Just leave other people alone. What I find with those that don't have Christmas trees is that they get prideful about not having any Christmas ornaments and begin to tell people about why they're so wrong in having those. It goes on to say, for God will receive him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Who's he to judge you on where your heart is? To his own master, he stands and falls, but God is able to make him stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Now we're on days, Saturday and Sunday. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So you be fully convinced. I am fully convinced that for me to have a Christmas tree in my house and that when we get home after celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, if we hide eggs in our backyard for our grandkids to go and find, we are not committing any kind of paganism. Fully convinced. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks for it. No, uh, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, we live and die. We are the Lord's. So it's up to us in our true and real relationship with God. And you should look into it and see. Is there something that says that if you have anything connected to paganism in your life, then you're committing, you're committing paganism? What about Daru using the word January? It comes from the god Janus, the Roman god Janus. How about Saturday? Saturnalia comes from that. We have so many words that we use every day that come from paganism. They're going to stop using those words. You're going to stop using those. If you're going to judge me because I have a Christmas tree in my house and I celebrate Christ and guarantee you I have no paganism involved in it and you judge me, well, the Bible says in the manner you judge is the manner you're going to be judged. You better look at every aspect of your life and make sure that you are not using any form of paganism in any in, that has kept itself around in our culture in any way, shape or form. 
if you are worshiping God by, if a church puts a Christmas tree up in their, in their foyer and they're worshiping God, then it's not paganism. All right. Thank you, Daru. I hope that's helpful. This is part of the reason that I love that we have our Q and A's that we can clarify things like this, because I think it's so important and I'm so far away from legalism and I've seen where legalism can take people and I don't want us to go there. All right. So thank you very much. We have a question from Susan. Susan, good to see you. Um, what to say to an, uh, to other believers who her, who actively struggle with sin and say, I can't change until God changes me. Well, let me give you a short answer. Then let me give you a longer answer. Uh, the short answer, what should you say to believers who say that? You're not following scripture. The Bible says, should we continue in, in sin that grace may abound, may it never be. The Bible says, Jesus said to Peter, pray that you would be, pray lest you enter into temptation. So Peter had something he could do to stop the temptation that would have not led him into the sin. And so this kind of fatalistic idea as a Christian, look, I'm struggling with sin, but I can't change it until God changes it in me, is an excuse and is very dangerous. I am responsible for my choices and I can make decisions. The Bible says, no temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man, but God is faithful. And with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Then you have a choice as to whether or not you will go down that road of escape. This kind of fatalism is a way for you to say, I'm going to continue to sin. I'm going to continue to be involved in sin. And that's okay because God will change me when God changes me. It's extremely, it's extremely dangerous because you're not surrendered to God at all. He isn't your savior. You're just giving into sin and saying, God's going to change me when God changes me. It reminds me of determinism that, that everything's already set up for me. Everything's already established for me and there's nothing that I can change. So I might as well just go through with it. I've seen this happen with those that get involved in Calvinism. They get involved with Calvinism. They think, well, God has determined everything. He's, he's, cho he's either chosen me or rejected me and he's determined everything in my life. And if I'm looking at pornography, then that's because God determined me to do it. So there's nothing else that I can do. What a, what a horrible thought process to bring you there. And no, you have choices. And the, the corruption that comes into your life because of the choices that you're making are your responsibility. So this is so dangerous because Susan, the person that says that is making, is, is sowing to the flesh and from the flesh reaping corruption. When the Bible says, so to the spirit and from the spirit reap life. God gave him his word. What else does he want him to do? He supernaturally gave prophecies in it to tell him that his word is solid and we should follow it. What else should we do? No, this is a person and, and I, I'm not one to judge them, but going by what is said here, I can't change until God changes me, is a person that wants to stay in their sin, that doesn't want to, to, to do anything to change it. Maybe they're a person that has tried and been unable to, and they feel they can't. Doesn't make a difference though, this is still fatalism. And it is nowhere taught in, Bible, in the scriptures. The scriptures never say, don't worry about your sin because God will change you when he's ready to. This, <laughs> take this little thought here. I can't change until God changes me and find me verses that back that up. And maybe that's what you say to him in a kind, loving, gentle way, right? Or her just, just to say, okay, well, don't we should be biblical. And where does the Bible say that? Because I can show you where the Bible says to resist the enemy and he will flee from you, to flee temptation, to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That God will, will provide a way of escape in the midst of temptation. All of these have our responsibility in it. Doesn't mean we'll always do what's right. Doesn't mean we won't fail, but this 
is an acceptance of a sin in their lives. That is something that we are not supposed to do. If we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins if we confess them. But if we just say, well, I'll change when uh, God changes me, then that is such a scary, really downright scary place to be. All right, Susan, so um, pray for them, pray that God opens up their door because that um, that's a really bad attitude. All right. So I appreciate you guys. Uh, just take a look here now for another question. Uh, we have a question here from one God seven seven seven. That's one God one seven for each person of the Trinity three in one. I like it. All right. Question Hebrews chapter one. I believe verse eight. Am I understanding that God calls Jesus good, God? I bring it up because when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, I bring it up when talking, oh, because I bring it up when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, this is one of the passages that I go to as well. And it's one of them that is still in their Bible. And remember, this is a quote from the Old Testament. So you can go to the Old Testament and you can quote it in the Old Testament. The power of this verse, let's just take the Jehovah's Witnesses out of it for a moment, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus was created first and then became God. I had talked a little bit earlier about our first creed, the Apostles' Creed, which came out in 125 to 135. So Christianity started in one, the 130s, and so here's 100 years later, and we have a creed that's put in place because there were people believing different things about the Trinity. One of them was that Jesus was created and then created everything like they say about Jesus, okay? So just take the, the, let's just take them out of the picture for a moment and let's just look at this for the amazingness of what this tells us about our Savior. So all of chapter one of the book of Hebrews, well, all of Hebrews is about the preeminence of Christ. It was during the time that the temple was still built, these Christians were wanting to go back to the temple. Many of them were going back to the temple, and I'll bring this up here in a minute, going back to the temple, and they were worshiping and serving, going back to giving sacrifices. And this appalled the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, but it appalled them. And so he spent the whole time talking about how Jesus is preeminent over the angels, over the law, over every aspect. He is our high priest uh, by the order of Melchizedek. Uh, he is our sacrifice. He is our rest. He goes through this whole book and shows us all of that. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing study for us to be able to have. Now, in this chapter, he's talking about the preeminence over the angels. When he says in verse Eight. I want to make sure that I do have the New King James up version up here. All right, let me go and put this up on the screen here. So again, talk about the, that he's more he's he's preeminent over the angels. That's this whole thing here. Okay, so it says, but to his son he says, to his son. What does what does Psalms two say about the son? We'll go there in a minute. But to his son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness and a scepter to your kingdom. When Jesus was in front of Caiaphas on his Jewish trial, Caiaphas said, I adjure you in the name of the living God. Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say, but here on out, you will see the son of man coming with power and dominion on the clouds. Now he made a reference to Daniel seven, but he admitted that he is the son of God. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So when Jesus affirms that he is the Son of God, according to Hebrews chapter 1, he is affirming that he is God. Do you see that? And how powerful that is? So that people say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, there's a reason for that. Because crazy people say they're God. And so Jesus affirmed that he was the Messiah. Instead of standing up and saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am God in the flesh, which all kinds of people did. He waited until people saw his life and said, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. Lord, I think you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? Flesh and blood is shown to my God and Father in heaven has shown him to you. Caiaphas, are you the Son of God? It is as you say. Pilate, are you, are you a king? Yes, I am a king. So he affirms the things people are saying. 
So God call, says the Son of God is God. Now let's go to Psalms chapter 2, which has always been thought of to be a messianic prophecy. This isn't a, a, a psalm, messianic psalm. This isn't just Christians saying this. This is, it's always been thought by Jews to be a messianic psalm. Okay? And you'll see why. It talks about the anointed one. So I'm going to bring this up here to you. Remember, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, which was brought up to us, says the Son of God is God. Okay? And so this is, how can the Jehovah Witnesses continue to deny this? Because God calls him God. They changed their Bible, and I wouldn't be surprised if they don't change their Bible pretty soon to not say it. The Bible so clearly teaches Jesus as God is God on every level in so many places. And, and Jesus did say he was God, but he was affirming it to people. So let me just put this up on the screen for you. Um, this is Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man. Actually, I want Psalm chapter two. I'm just going to do it while you're watching. Sorry. Uh, so Psalms two. Here we go. Verse one. All right. Um, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. The term Messiah means anointed. So the kings of the earth are going to come against God and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be under the, their rule. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. So God's response is, he's going to laugh. He looks down at man saying, we're not going to submit to you. We're going to cast off your cords. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord shall hold him in derision. Then he shall speak to, to them in his wrath and distress them in the deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will deliver the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So God called him God in Hebrews 8, on Hebrews 1, 8. And here he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so they'll say, well, that means he was born. He was the first one born, but God called him God. And John 1 says nothing was made without him. So he is the firstborn. Why is he the firstborn? Because he has the right of the firstborn. He's not the first one created. He is the firstborn. The Mormons will say he was the first spirit baby created. Again, it's wrong. He was the firstborn. He has the right of the inheritance. It's the position of the firstborn. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth for its possessions. You shall break with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. A potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. So this son, who is said to be God, when you put your trust in him, when you kiss him, when you are affectionate towards him, then you're able to serve him and follow him. So now we go back to the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, this is one of the most powerful passages that shows Jesus as God. Another one is Revelation chapter 1, where the one who says, I am he who was, who is, and who is to come, who was dead and alive forevermore, and was dead, who was alive, dead, and alive forevermore, the Almighty, okay, the Almighty is God. And Isaiah 9, 6, they'll argue, when it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So a child is going to be born who is called God, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. They'll say, well, it doesn't say he's Almighty God. They'll say he's, he's God. To which you respond with, how many mighty gods are there? And don't you guys see how you're just dancing around it here? Because the Bible says there is one God, right? The, the Shema. Behold, O Israel. The Lord our God is one God. How many mighty gods can you have? You can, you can certainly paint them into a corner and they will still walk away. You can prove Jesus through the scriptures as being God to them from their Bible and they will still end up walking away. So pray that God would give you openings and maybe that showing them something like you showed them in Hebrews chapter one and Psalms chapter two, 
can be very powerful because they have to, it's not about them going out and knocking on doors that's gonna save them. I'll do this for knocking on doors. It's gonna save them. But they have to put their trust in the sun or they will not be saved. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. And that was from um, One God 777 is that right? I'm going back to look for it here. Yeah, One God 777 really good question and really good verse uh, for every Christian to know, to memorize, to understand that Jesus is God. It's one of the ways that I go into the concept of Jesus being God. There are, are others, by the way, many others that I use. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, Barbara has a question for us. Barbara says, question, this one's from uh, my young granddaughter. All right, well, say hi to her, all right, for me. She asked me if there were dinosaurs in the time of Noah before the flood. And if there were, why aren't there dinosaurs now? Um, yes, um, I can answer that. Yes, there were dinosaurs before the flood. I believe that the fossil record is from the quick destruction of everything that was on the earth. And that's why dinosaurs, why, why, why fossils are piled up in certain places. I realize this goes against other thoughts. I realize that there are a lot of Christians who believe in an older earth. And I can tell you that I, I can tell you that it doesn't make you either a Christian or not a Christian. If you believe in an older earth, you, you, in my, in my mind, you must reject evolution on every level because it can't be proven. It's not proven. There's no evidence for it. I still have a standing statement out there. Prove to me evolution. If you're an evolutionist, then prove it to me. You say, well, I'm so smart and you're so dumb. You can't, I can't do it to you. Well, then you're being so smart, figure out a way to prove it. Just show me that is true because there are no intermediate creatures in the fossil record. They've thrown the fossil record out. They believe in punctuated evolution. There's problems with carbon dating and still is problems with carbon dating. And so um, I believe that Remember, if, if, if dinosaurs were taken out of the ark, they were talking down small. You could take baby dinosaurs on the ark. And then after the earth changed, after maybe the, the church shifted in its axis, maybe the mountains were higher, and what, whatever changed, you know, they found lush um, vegetation underneath the ice caps, the polar ice caps, so that one, one time they had vegetation. And so something happened so the dinosaurs could no longer exist on the earth after the, the flood in the antediluvian period. And for those who may be thinking about that now, thinking that, oh boy, that seems foolish to me. Remember the Bible says, I think it's in First Peter, they deliberately forget the flood. In other words, the evidence is there for the flood, but they deliberately forget the flood. So I think that we ought to be careful before we write it off because our culture believes in a long or uh, in, a, in an old earth before we just write it off, okay? So um, now having said that too, um, Barbara, and this may not be for your granddaughter, but I don't argue the age of the earth either because it looks old. And if it looks old and scientists find something to look old, let me give you an example of what I say it looks old. When you look at the uh, through a telescope and you're looking at a star that is, and, and, and you're looking at a star that is 100,000 light years away from us, 100,000 light years, that means that's a path of that star being there for 100,000 years. Now, did God make up that path? And if they see that as being there for 100,000 years, how would I argue with them that it wasn't 100,000 years if that's what they're seeing? Now, could God in creation have created everything, and we know that time and space and speed is relative. They all move differently independently. So how do we know that when the, the earth, when God created the world and shook it out like a blanket, as the Bible says, first creation, how do we know that these time streams weren't created and that time didn't move differently in creation than it moves now? So that maybe it did take hundreds of thousands of years for the universe to be created in some parts of it but in other parts, a literal six days. We don't know. 
I don't think there's any way we can say it would be that or not. You could say, well, that's that's silly. That wouldn't be the case. Yeah, well, you show me quantum physicists who have everything together. Who, who, who go, when you get down to the basic elements, they don't react the way they're supposed to. And we don't know what it's like to move at at speeds that this universe would have been created at and what would have happened then. But anyway, that's the answer. They were there before. They were brought onto the ark. They were taken off of the ark. Uh, the, the climate of the earth had changed and they, they perished, okay? Because they couldn't survive in the new climate. All right, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. All right, um, we have, let's see what we got here. It's good to see you guys. If you're new, really glad to have you here. Um, we have, um, so I'm looking at a message from Kay about Bible translations. Would God allow for his true message of Jesus, his word and the plan of salvation to become lost by dudes playing God with his purpose? Uh, would we be lost? We um, would have lost what is true. Yeah, yeah, no, God. Okay, so the Bible says in, let me, let me look for this if I can find it. Um, God promises that he's going to preserve his Bible from generation to generation. So whatever men are doing, God's going to be able to uh, to keep it. Um, yeah, let me go to this. I have this highlighted in my Bible. Let me go and pull this up for you. So um, it says the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried by the furnace, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from generation to generation. So not only can we trust the process of the process of textual criticism to get us to what the Word of God originally says, we have God's promise that He is going to preserve His Word from generation to generation, and that's something that we can trust in. That we can say, "Yes, Lord, I believe you. That you are going to give us Your Word, and that we can stand on it and not be moved by doing so." All right, so thank you. Um, and I love that you guys are staying on point with your conversations, talking about the things that we've been talking about. I think this can be so helpful. Remember, there are a lot of people that watch this after we're done, and they're, they they look at these, these um, uh, comments as well and can kind of see our interaction. And I think it really adds to it, all right? Uh, because I'm not gonna be able to answer everything and there's new thoughts and ideas um, that are brought up by you guys. Okay, so it's been really good being with you today. We're near the end here. Um, and let's see, I'm going to go down here and see if we got one more question. We got a question from Jari. This will be our last question for today. All right. So if you have another question, you can put it in here. I, I could look at it at the beginning of the next uh, Q&A. Uh, I'll answer this question by Jari and then we'll wrap things up. We have a service in about an hour. Uh, I'm going to be talking about where to find the rapture in the book of Revelation and I'm going to be talking about how early Christians believed in the rapture, even though there's some that claim that it was a late invention by Darby in the late 1800s. But the early Christians believed in the, in the rapture, and I want to show you why, uh, in our study tonight, okay? So um, that's Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2. We're moving slowly and thoroughly through the book of Revelation. And if you watch it, you have any questions about it, uh, we will have another Q&A, Lord willing, on Saturday, and we can ask questions about that. All right, um, Jari says, uh, does time stop in heaven, or why did God create the sun and the moon and the stars before they, the fall? Would they have a different purpose? Uh, okay, so here's how I understand it, Jari. And certainly there's gonna be different Christians with different views on this, but how I understand it is that God is outside of time, God's outside of the time, space, matter continuum. And then he created the time, space, matter continuum. And because of that, he knows what's going to happen now. Not like He's not like looking down a long tunnel with his foreknowledge and going, I know Jari's going to do that, so I'm going to uh, predestine him to do that because he did that. It's that he's outside of time. I, I, I'm, the best analogy I've ever heard is someone standing on a corner watching the Macy's Parade. And the Macy's Parade float is about to come down the road, but it's it stopped. Another float has gone by and it's empty in front of them. And so they turn on their radio and the radio station is talking about the blimp that's flying above you by 500 feet. And all you can see is the corner to your right and the corner to your left. 
But you hear on the float that the Macy's float has broken down and it's going to be a half an hour before it gets there. So you go and get yourself on a snow cone and the Macy's parade and you come back a half hour and sure enough, here comes the float. From you, you go, well, that's miraculous. They knew it was broken down. They knew it was going to be half an hour. They knew exactly where it was. From your perspective, you couldn't see it. From their perspective, they could see in front and behind. They knew what was going on instantly in front of you and behind you because they had a different perspective. So God lives outside of time and everything is happening at once to him in the same time. That's my, that's my view. So that God can see that I made a commitment to him so he predestined certain things to happen in my life. It's not that God's looking down this giant tunnel, tunnel of my life. So your question, does time stop in heaven? No. God created time and space outside of heaven. And we're about to enter into eternity where there is no time and space. That's what I believe. Um, and um, so um, hopefully that helps, Jari. And I'll take a follow-up from you on that if you have it at our next Q&A. All right. So good to see you guys. Uh, with our hot topic background. Uh, I hope that uh, you guys are having a great day. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Love Jesus. Join us for our service. That is in about an hour. Uh, I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes on Revelation 4, 1 and 2, an open door in heaven and a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here. And we're going to be talking about the rapture of the church in the book of Revelation. And I want to show you why early Christians believed in the rapture of the church. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I'm out. Bye.